Well, good morning. It just got so quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you have chosen to join us today. Those of you here with us, those of you online, feels like a pretty full house right now. This is great. So glad that you all are here with us today. We are continuing on in our sermon series, You Are Not Your Own, today. That Chris has been walking through for the last couple of weeks with us. And uh, I have to tell you, a couple weeks ago, Chris asked if I would speak today. And he told me that the sermon topic would be Jesus. So that just leaves things wide open. We are here to talk about Jesus today. And I was like, Chris, what am I supposed to do with that? That's the classic Sunday school or youth group answer to every question, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And how are we supposed to talk about that in just 30 minutes or so? So I know I joked last week when Chris talked on uh, basically Genesis 12 through Malachi, it was gonna be like an eight hour long sermon. But today is the one you should really be worried about. Today is, today is the one we should really be worried about. I, I thought about what John concludes his gospel with. The very last verse in the gospel of John said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So strap in, are you ready? Uh, I, I will be honest with you though, this has probably been one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to write. Not because it's difficult to talk about Jesus, because it's difficult to only talk about Jesus for 30 minutes and somehow in that time capture the essence of who Jesus is and I, I mean, what am I supposed to say, you know? So just bear with me this morning as we embark on this journey together and we are actually gonna start in the place where any and every good Jesus sermon obviously starts and that's in the book of Leviticus. So turn to Leviticus with me. I'm serious, that's not a joke. Leviticus, and uh, you're probably sitting here wondering, like, what on earth is going on, and what does Leviticus have to do with Jesus, and aren't we supposed to be in the Gospels today, and yes, we will be, we'll get there, trust me, but uh, if you remember a couple of years ago, some of you who are a part of our church, even before COVID, we walked through the Thread series, which was basically 66 weeks, every single week, one book of the Bible, and part of the purpose of that was looking at the thread of Jesus in the Gospel woven throughout the entirety of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, from beginning to end. And yes, Leviticus is part of that too. And so uh, the last couple of weeks, Chris even talked about several different Old Testament precursors to, to Jesus, to the promised Messiah. A couple of weeks ago, talking about the fall in Genesis chapter three, he talked about how as part of the fall, God cursed Satan and Part of that curse was basically saying that the offspring of Eve, talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the offspring of Eve would one day crush Satan's head in victory. Last week, talking about Israel and the rest of the Old Testament, one of the things that Chris talked about was in Genesis chapter 15, this blood covenant that Abraham made with God. And if you are, weren't here last Sunday or didn't hear that sermon, I just encourage you to go back and listen to that because that's more than I have time for today. I hear say blood covenant, and you're like, what? What is going on? Um, basically, Abraham and God made a covenant, and it involved cutting a bunch of animals in half and having a blood trench that they walked through, except that Abraham fell asleep, and he never walked through the blood trench, but God walked through on Abraham's behalf, signifying that, that God would pay the penalty of death for Abraham's and the rest of Israel's disobedience and sin against him. So today we're gonna to take a look at one last Old Testament precursor to Jesus before we move into the New Testament, which is why we're in Leviticus chapter 16 right now. 
And uh, we're going to be bouncing around the chapter a little bit, so just bear with me here. But here's what we read, starting in verse 2, Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Skipping down to verse 6. Continues, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement and by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Now skipping down to verse 20, he continues. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. So you might be sitting here right now wondering, what does a curtain and a couple of goats have to do with Jesus? And that is a fair question. This curtain is what separated the most holy place in the tabernacle from the rest of the tabernacle. And then later on in Israel's history when they had their permanent temple in the temple. And the most holy place, it wasn't just anywhere. It was just that, the most holy place. It was what held the Ark of the Covenant and a few other items and and symbols that were important to the nation of Israel and their history. In essence, the most holy place, it was representative of the essence, the manifestation, the presence of God. It was the most holy place. And God, being perfect and holy and righteous and sinless, cannot have sin or imperfection or unholiness or any blemish in his presence. It conflicts with his character, with the nature of who he is. And so the most holy place Only one time, one day per year, was anyone even allowed to enter the most holy place. And at that, it was only the high priest, in this case, Moses' brother Aaron. Only the high priest could enter in after he had sacrificed a bull to atone for his own sin. And when he would go into the most holy place, they would actually even tie a rope around his ankle so that if by any chance he did something wrong in the whole prep process, and he screwed something up, and he entered into God's presence with sin. He was struck dead, and then they could just pull the body back out, and they didn't have to enter into the most holy place. They did not mess around with the most holy place. It is holy. It is the presence of God. And so the whole purpose of this day of atonement, this whole chapter 16, what it's talking about, is to atone for, to to pay for or make amends for the sins of the nation of Israel from that previous year. And as you can see in the bit that we read in the rest of the chapter surrounding as well, there's this whole long process that was to take place in order to cleanse the high priest and the rest of Israel from their sins from that previous year before he could even enter into the most holy place. 
He sacrifices a bull to atone for his own offering. And then these two goats come in. And what on earth is going on here? So there's two goats. They cast lots for the goat. goats. One goat, not so lucky. He dies as a sin offering. He is slaughtered and sacrificed for the sins of Israel. And then the other goat, what is known as the scapegoat, this is where we get our word scapegoat from, the scapegoat or the azazel, the goat of removal. This goat literally would have all the sins of Israel confessed over it, and then it would be sent out into the desert to wander. So it's carrying the burden of Israel's sin, and it wanders. It's far removed from the presence of God forever, and it's ultimately destined to die. Sacrificial goat dies for the sins. Scapegoat bears the burden of the sins. What does this have to do with Jesus? Jesus was the scapegoat who took on the weight of our sins as well as that other sacrificial goat who died for them. He fulfills the roles of both goats. And I had to laugh this week thinking about this. You know, Jesus, we call him the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, and those are things that he calls himself. But Jesus is also the goat. I never thought, had thought about that before. Jesus is also the goat. And what an incredible moment, hundreds of years before Jesus ultimately arrives on earth, that also points to his coming. This day of atonement, the fact that Israel, year after year after year after year, would have to sit there and go through this process and sacrifice the bull and the two goats, this whole sacrificial goat and scapegoat, and just to atone for their sins from the previous year and this whole thing. And yet, one day Jesus would come to fulfill those roles of both goats and to be the one-time sacrifice for all. And the truth is, there are so many other moments throughout the course of the Old Testament that point to the coming of the promised Messiah. Things like prophecies that were spoken about the promised Messiah. People who were imperfect glimpses of who the Messiah would be or what he would one day be like. Well, we're going to fast forward to the New Testament now. See, I told you we'd get there. And so we recently celebrated Christmas, which is all about the birth of Jesus. But have you ever thought about why Jesus came? Certainly for lots of reasons, but ultimately Jesus came in order to die. John 3.16, perhaps the most well-known verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his Son, Jesus. Jesus came in order to die, in order to bring us life. But have you ever thought about this verse from the perspective of Jesus? God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus so loved the world and so loved the Father that he willingly came. Jesus was willing to come and to give his life to die for us. Imagine being Jesus. How difficult would that be walking through life day by day, knowing that your primary purpose in life was to die? I mean, it's one thing we all know that at some point in life we will die. That day will come. But imagine knowing that your primary purpose in life was to die. And yet Jesus knew what that death would bring about. He knew that his death meant life. He saw the bigger purpose in the bigger picture 
of what that meant, and he willingly walked through that because of what it would bring about. I think about when Jesus, the night before he is crucified, soon before he's arrested, as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, some of his final moments of of just spending time him and God, him and the Father together. And he prays, Father, Abba, let this cup, this death, be taken away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, in his humanity, despite knowing what was demanded of him, despite knowing that he came to die, was facing that death. It was coming soon. And he was feeling the weight of that. Again, the weight and burden of the sins of the world. Soon to die the death of sin for the world. And yet, he knew what was demanded of him. And he knew that it would take his death. But there's something special we see in that moment of the relationship that Jesus has with his father. And we could get into, uh, dive very deep into all the gospels in all of these moments that we see of of Jesus and his father and the relationship they had and why he was willing to go through with that because of his love for the father and his love for us. But just to name a few, Jesus says things like this. He says, I and the father are one. The father is in me and I am in the father. He says, on that day you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. And Jesus was constantly getting away and he was spending time alone with God because he desired that relationship with the Father. He desired to grow in that relationship. He realized that he was not his own. He belonged to the Father. If Jesus, the creator, the God of the universe, the perfect, sinless savior of the world, if he wasn't his own but belonged to the Father, what on earth makes us think that we are our own? If Jesus needed relationship with the Father, What makes us think that we don't? And Jesus shows that not only did he belong to the Father, he is for us too. As Paul writes to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, he says, he, talking about God, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Jesus is the ultimate gift. And yet God just sees fit in his grace to bless us in ways beyond that. But ultimately Jesus is that gift. Why do we withhold from God what's rightfully his? We are made in his image, stamped in his likeness. As followers of Jesus, sealed with the Holy Spirit, we belong to God. He does not withhold good things from us. Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Son of God, did not see fit to withhold himself from us or from the Father. We belong to God. And as we've been walking through this series, you are not your own. Something that Chris has mentioned the past several weeks is that you are your own until you're not. You are your own until you're not. In other words, when you are not following Jesus, you are your own. You're your own. You still are created in God's image and you are still deeply loved by him, but you're your own. You're living for yourself. But if you are following Jesus, then you are not your own. And you might be sitting here wondering why any of us could possibly ever want to follow Jesus. I mean, isn't life more fun 
and you're living it for yourself and you can do what you want and it's all about you and you don't have to worry about anyone or anything else or morals or any of that. You can just do you. Do life the way you want it to be done. And I have to be honest with you today. Not that I haven't been. Following Jesus is not a cakewalk. Following Jesus is not sunshine and rainbows. We are promised persecution. We are guaranteed suffering. We are demanded to surrender and sacrifice everything. There is a great cost to following Jesus. It demands everything of us. And we each have to decide individually whether or not we're willing to give what is asked of us, to do what is asked of us. And we're not called to just be halfway in. We are called to be all in. Jesus himself says in Revelation, not to be lukewarm, because if we are lukewarm, he is going to spit us out of his mouth. How's that for imagery? We are called to be all in for Jesus. You are your own until you're not. I was thinking about the Apostle Paul this week who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, as he's writing to the church in Philippi this letter, he basically goes and at some point gives essentially his spiritual resume, as it were. This is who I am. This is how I've grown up. This is what I've done. This is the awesome person that I am, that I was the righteous person, all the rules that I followed. I was the perfect Jew, blah, 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 blah. And then he comes to this point, this turning point. And this is where we're picking it up in Philippians chapter three, verse seven. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them rubbish. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There is a great cost to following Jesus. But the cost of not following Jesus is infinitely greater. When I don't follow Jesus, I am destined for not just a physical life here without him and the love and the joy and the comfort that he brings, but I'm also destined for an eternity separated from him. So not only am I missing out on a personal relationship with Jesus, I am literally choosing hell for myself. But following Jesus, there's a cost. That cost of following Jesus, it might demand surrender and sacrifice and trust and humility and love and serving and a whole host of other things. 
It demands a lot of us. But the reward is so much greater. Not only do I get to be in a personal relationship with Jesus, the Savior and the God of the universe, now on this earth, I get to experience him for all eternity, to be forever in his presence with the love and the life to the full and the joy that I was created for. Following Jesus is not easy. It doesn't always seem fun or attractive. It might seem more attractive to be your own than to not be your own. There are eternal rewards to following Jesus and eternal consequences to not following Jesus. The summer before I joined staff here at the church, with my previous job doing campus ministry, I had staffed a summer mission project for about 80 college students in a summer beach resort town in New Jersey, right along the ocean. It was a pretty rough summer experience. And... uh, It was really cool. I had gotten to attend this as a student a few years prior, and so it was a bunch of college students from all over the country coming together and and growing in their faith and learning how to share their faith and making their faith their own to take it back to their campuses, back to their homes, and uh, just a really, really neat experience. Well, a couple weeks into that summer, there was a student named Calvin who was from Arizona State University, and one night, all of a sudden, Calvin just packed up his things. He left, and he flew home to Arizona. And he left a letter behind that was read to the staff and students the following day. And I wanted to share it with you this morning. I don't remember it perfectly well. This is just an abbreviated version as I can best remember it, all right? But here's what he said. Dear staff and students, I've made the difficult decision to return home to Arizona. I've enjoyed my past few weeks here with you all. I'm grateful for the people that I met and the friendships that I made. This truly is an amazing place. Many of you are on fire for Jesus and seeking to grow in your faith. It's being encouraged in all of us, but I've realized it's just not where I'm at. I've been doing a lot of soul searching since I've been here, and I've come to a conclusion. We all have the choice between light and darkness, whether we will live in the light or live in the darkness. The truth is, I love the darkness. I love living in the darkness. I choose the darkness. That is where I want to be. I'm sorry to leave you all. I'm sorry for how that may disappoint you, but I have to be true to who I am and to where I'm at in my spiritual journey. Hope to see you around, Calvin. Now, that was a devastating letter for the students and staff to hear. I know it was for me, and I barely knew Calvin. I hadn't been able to interact with him much in those couple of weeks. But Calvin realized there's a choice we all have to make. Life, death, good, evil, light, darkness. Jesus, not Jesus. Earlier we read John 3.16, which is so well known, but Do you know what follows that? John 3, 17, obviously. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done through God. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus came not to condemn us, but to save us, to bring us life instead of death. And we have that choice on my own or I'm not my own, following Jesus or I'm not. I'm living in the light or living in the darkness. I'm giving up control and living for Jesus or I'm not. We were bought at a price, the blood of Jesus. This verse we've read every week in this series, this is where our series title comes from, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Jesus' body was not his own, but he gave it up for us. He honored God with his body. He knew it served a greater purpose. We were bought at a price. I was thinking this week about those old MasterCard commercials. This item, X dollars. This item, Y dollars. This MasterCard thing, priceless. There's cost to following Jesus, as we said. Sometimes even monetary cost. But knowing Jesus, priceless. Being in relationship with Jesus, priceless. Spending eternity with Jesus, priceless. Blood of Jesus, priceless. It is invaluable. It is worth more than we could ever possibly imagine, far more valuable than the cost of whatever we give. Jesus knew what his death would bring about, and as he marched toward his death, there's this really significant moment that we can so easily miss in the midst of this whole going to the cross thing. Kind of like one of those side characters in a movie or a show who briefly shows up somewhere along the middle And then you kind of forget about them, and then they end up playing a a significant part in the end. As Jesus is on trial for these bogus charges of blasphemy, he gets brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. This is where our story picks up in Mark chapter 15. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or devices with me, it's also going to be up on the screen. Mark chapter 15. Not too many hours after Jesus' moment in the garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father before this. Here's what we read, starting in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up, and they asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. 
But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What then shall I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked of them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So there's this man in this story named Barabbas, who's currently in prison for committing murder in a recent uprising. Probably a pretty legitimate reason to be in prison. And Pilate has this custom of releasing a prisoner to the Jews each year during the Passover feast, which is taking place at this time. And that's just his way of trying to appease the Jews and get on their good side because many of them did not like the Roman rule. Kind of makes you wonder who else he released over the years. And so we see this moment where the chief priests stir up the crowd to call for Barabbas' release. And maybe you've read this story before, but have you ever thought about what it would like to be in Barabbas' place? I mean, imagine that you're Barabbas, and you are in prison. You're in shackles and chains, knowing that you've committed murder, knowing that you are deserving of whatever the punishment, in this case, death, and not just any death, but crucifixion, the most extreme and brutal and cruel of executions. You're deserving of that. And as you're sitting there in prison, all of a sudden, one day, you start to hear something. And it gets louder and louder. And eventually, you realize it's people chanting your name. Barabbas. 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 And it gets louder and louder. And all of a sudden, the the guards show up, and they come to grab you and they take you and they take off your shackles and chains and they release you and you walk away free. No judgment, no penalty, no death. You walk away in freedom. And as you're walking away, there's this moment where you see this other man who is bound in shackles and chains. His name is Jesus. You may have heard of him. People have been talking about him. He's caused quite a stir too. And this man, Jesus, ends up taking your place. There's this prisoner swap that goes on. He is deserving of freedom. He's not guilty. But he takes on punishment and death that you deserved and is condemned to die on a cross. Have you ever thought about the fact that in the story of Jesus and Barabbas, I am Barabbas? You are Barabbas. We are all Barabbas. Now, maybe we aren't all murderers, but we've all sinned. And the penalty for that sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. When we were on death's doorstop, Jesus willingly took our place, even though he didn't deserve it. He died the death that we deserved. And by his mercy and grace, we walked away. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. But it goes one step further. Just because God is amazing like that, and there's just this extra layer of truth in this story. 
Something we see throughout scripture is that names and name meanings hold significance. I know that was important to us in deciding our child's name. Names mean something. Well, the name Barabbas in the Aramaic actually would have been pronounced Bar-Abba. 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 Bar meant son of. Abba, as you may know, meant father. Or in a more intimate sense, daddy. And so not only did Jesus swap places with Barabbas, but the son of the father God, the son of Abba, literally swapped places with Barabbas, Barabbas, son of the father. And through his death and resurrection, we see how we too become sons and daughters, not just of any father, but of the father, of the Abba, of God. This incredible moment of what Jesus has done for us, taking us from nobodies to sons and daughters of the Father, God. I love how Paul describes this in Romans 8. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God because of what Jesus did for us. And in another significant moment of his death, as he continues on this journey, we see that realized a little bit further down in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died, that curtain separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, giving us open access to God, to the Father through Jesus. We can have a personal relationship with Jesus, with God because of Jesus. He is our way to the Father. As he himself says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus bore our burden of sin like that scapegoat. Jesus died our death of sin like that sacrificial goat. We were bought with a price, the body and the blood of Jesus, his life, and that doesn't make us his slaves that makes us his children. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God, and because that curtain has been torn in two, we have total access to God through Jesus. So how do we experience this eternal life and this relationship, this personal relationship that we speak of? Well, as Paul writes in Romans 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And so if this is you today, if you're done living for yourself, if you're done trying to make it on your own, if you're done walking in darkness, experiencing death instead of life, and you want to live in the light, and you want to experience the freedom that God would have for you through Jesus, and you desire to give all of those things up, there is a great cost. I encourage you to pray with me here this morning. 
Father God, Abba, there is a great cost to following you. But I realize I am not my own and I desire to give that up. God, I belong to you. Jesus, I believe that you willingly came to this earth to live the perfect, sinless life I was meant to live, to die the sinner's death that I deserved, bearing my burden of sin. I believe that you rose from the dead to give me new life in you. Jesus, I'm done living for myself. I believe that you're Savior and Lord, I confess those sins to you. I wanna be your son, God. I wanna be your daughter. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. God, thank you for making me your son, your daughter. Thank you for choosing me, calling me yours for seeing that I was worth it and your great love for me. Thank you for making me yours. Amen. We have the opportunity in a minute to take part in communion. But before we do that, I just want to open up the floor. If, whether today or some other time recently, you have made a decision to follow Jesus, and you want to proclaim that publicly, we have this wall over here, this tree. We get to turn a light bulb to represent that light of Jesus shining in you. And so if there's anybody, I won't make you say anything, but is there anybody today that would like to come forward? And as we worship in a moment here and celebrate with you, anybody that would like to come forward and turn a light bulb, we would love to celebrate that with you. Anybody this morning? All right, we are going to take part in communion this morning and how perfect talking about Jesus and his sacrifice of his body and his blood that we get to share in the Lord's Supper here this morning. We have open communion here, which just means that if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you have a personal relationship with him, you are welcome to partake in this with us. The elements are here in the front. It's double stacked, so make sure you get both cups, the bread on the bottom, the juice on the top. There's some prepackaged ones as well. If everybody, uh, whenever you're ready, you can come down the main aisles and return along the sides. That'd be great. And we're going to take this time to just worship. The song Living Hope is going to be shared up front here this morning, and you are more than welcome to sing along about the living hope that Jesus is in us. If you just need to listen and reflect on the words, do that. But I invite you this morning, whenever you're ready, to come take the elements back to your seats and we'll take them together. Spirit. 
the night and through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ my
Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you are our living hope. Not just that we have hope because of you, we have life because of you, because you are alive. Jesus, thank you for that death that meant life for us. That resurrection that meant life for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The word tells us, receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your body that was given for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. Take it. supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood whenever you do this do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Jesus thank you for your blood that was spilled for us gave his life for you, what will you choose to do with that? As we close our time together this morning, I wanted to share one last passage of scripture with you. We've been walking through the book of Philippians with the high school youth last month or so. And in Philippians chapter 2, there's a poem, a song that Paul writes that so concisely and beautifully captures the essence of Jesus in the gospel. And here's what he says. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As followers of Jesus, we are to live out the attitude, the mindset of Jesus, that attitude of humility, that mindset of love, Jesus knew what his humble sacrifice would bring about. And while we don't always know or see the bigger picture of what our humble surrender or our sacrifice might bring, we can trust God to use us in mighty ways that are bigger than us. And that's my challenge to you today, church. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God. Let's pray, God. You are so good, so worthy of our praise. We worship you in this place.
Father, thank you. Thank you that you are Abba to us, that you are Daddy to us because of your Son, Jesus, his death and resurrection. We worship you in this place. I pray for these people here that we would carry that with us as we go from this place today, that we would never be the same. We are not the same because of who you are and what you've done in us. Lord, let people be drawn to that light that you are in us. We give this day, this week to you, Father. It's in your wonderful, powerful, precious name.